So, Dan, before we get started today, we just wanted to take a moment to let everyone know about something new from Bloomberg. Do you want to hear what it is? Go for it. Well, starting now, you can actually use our iOS app or Bloomberg's Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to the companies and the people you're reading about. So really, no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com backslash lens. All right. Well, I'll get back to you after I play around with it for a few minutes. Globalization under threat? Peak free trade? Today's headlines seem full of declarations that the once seemingly unstoppable march toward the free flow of goods, services, labor, and capital has stopped. Or has it? Never mind NAFTA, the end of TPP and Brexit, and forget the idea that globalization is a post-1945 or post-Cold War phenomenon. For a real barometer of globalization, it's past and critically it's present. Look no further than a small island sandwiched between Malaysia and Indonesia. Singapore, both a country and a city. And there's way more going on here than just a ban on chewing gum. I'm Daniel Moss. This is Bloomberg Benchmark, a podcast about the global economy. I'm joined by my colleague Scott Landman in Washington. Good to be with you, Dan. So smaller than Rhode Island, Singapore is nothing less than a trading superpower, and it's thriving, according to a new book by John Curtis Perry. Professor Perry from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University in Massachusetts, welcome to our program. Thank you very much, gentlemen. It's a great pleasure to be with you. And congratulations on the book. First, let's get something out of the way. It continues to amaze me, as a former resident of Southeast Asia, why the only thing many Americans know about Singapore is that you're not supposed to chew gum. How did this get to obscure the incredible rise, fall, and rise again of this trading superpower? Well, this chewing gum business, of course, (laughs) that's the one thing that people seem to know about Singapore. It's animus towards uh, chewing gum. Actually, it's available, but uh, you're not supposed to chew it and discard it on sidewalks, which I think uh, is um, quite an admirable thing. Singapore is remarkable because it's so small and so vital. Although it has problems, which we'll get to, uh, I think there are reasons for optimism and reasons for why Americans uh, should be especially interested in Singapore, particularly the business community, I think. Uh, Singapore has uh, such uh, vitality and such attractiveness as a place to do business that it's uh, drawn an amazing amount of interest from the American business community. We have uh, more money invested in uh, Singapore than we have in Australia. We have more money invested in Singapore than we have in Japan. We have more money twice as much money invested in Singapore than in all of China. 
which I think is a remarkable statistic. I would add on top of what Dan said about chewing gum being the only fact that a lot of people know is that I remember quite clearly when I was younger, the big story was about the kid in Singapore who was sentenced to uh, caning, which you duly recount in your book. Uh, But, you know, let's go back even further. You know, we, we have these remarkable facts about Singapore today, but tell us a little bit about the early origins of Singapore and the forces which led to its rise were, were really present long before the founder, Stamford Raffles, appeared on the scene. Was was Singapore the way to trade with China before you know there was the kind of China trade that we think about today? Well, you have to go back before the Europeans arrived um, and to the earlier um, uh, Malay presence in, in Singapore. Uh, Singapore was one of a number of maritime city-states about 700 years ago. Um, and uh, Tamasic or Singapura, uh, two names uh, for one place. Uh, Tamasic, by the way, is a name that's been resurrected by, for a large investment fund. But the history of this Malay past is very shadowy because all we have to work with is legend, a few documents, early travelers' accounts, and so forth, and pieces of pottery and bits of jewelry and so forth that have been dug up almost inadvertently. But now, in the 20th century, marine archaeology has entered the picture, and we've learned quite a bit more. So we can establish the fact that Singapore is about 700 years old, and it was a prosperous uh, trading state of Malays drawing uh, people from all over the archipelago and uh, conducting uh, a lively trade with, uh, with China. And the Chinese begin to recognize the value of Southeast Asia. Uh, they're drawn by the lure of tropical products, you know, things like rare woods, tortoise shell, this sort of thing. China's huge, but it's not self-sufficient. It doesn't have a tropical area. So the Chinese were drawn to Southeast Asia for what was available there, these exotic products. And they... They dealt with the Malays, and some of their traders stayed, and that's really the beginning of the great Chinese diaspora. It's also the beginning of great food in Malacca, is it not? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Food, uh, food represents a wonderful cultural fusion, and Singapore is particularly rich and diverse in its, its culinary world. Growing up in Australia, we're very familiar with the traumatic tale of the fall of Singapore, the sinking of the Prince of Wales, the sinking of the Repulse, and the geostrategic shift within my native land. But let's just rush through that for a second to get to the post-1945 era. The British return briefly. It doesn't go so well. Independence sweeps through the region. But unlike Indonesia and Malaysia, Singapore embraces its colonial heritage. Tell us why. That's right. Well, the Singaporean government and people have been so pragmatic, recognizing the need for jobs to feed their people, and the recognition that Singapore has no natural resources except its splendid harbor. 
the harbor, which uh, developed as a major world port even in the 19th century colonial era. And uh, as Lee Kuan Yew, the prime minister, founding prime minister, would say, ultimately, well, without the harbor, we are not half ourselves. So the maritime maritime role uh, of Singapore was uh, served as a catapult, which uh, kept it open to the rest of the world, even though it was a colony. It was part of the British Empire, which gave it a global embrace, and uh, uh, that was very important. So where are we now? Let's turn to the uh, go back to what we were talking about in our intro about globalization. How you know Singapore is a very seems like a barometer of globalization or a natural example of that. When I think about Singapore, having lived in China for a few years and uh, worked with a, a number of people, I become somewhat familiar with Singapore. Um, you know, you think about how English is the standard language there. Uh, it's very pro business. Uh, government service is highly valued, and its public servants are probably the highest paid in the world. You also have compulsory yes. military service there. H- how? Which of these things would you say is most key to Singapore's place in the world as a major center of trade and business right now? C- did you need all these things together, or is one of them more important than the others? Well, it's it's, it's a it's a tapestry. But uh, I think the maritime uh, is prime. Um, I think that uh, Singapore's role as a port generated uh, its initial importance. It went on uh, from from there. I think that uh, Singapore benefited, from, of course, from its strategic location and uh as an independent state after 1965, uh, it was fortunate in the timing it took uh, of that of the last uh, years since uh, since independence. Um, so it's it's a matter of luck. Luck in history is always a factor. After 1965, there was a huge leap in world wealth and increasing global economic integration and the breakdown of old oceanic empires releasing new energies and technological advantages to the, uh, particularly in the maritime sphere, the bulk carrier, the super ship, the standard size container, offering a, a seamless flow of goods all integrated by the Internet. Uh, all of these factors contributed to uh, Singapore's success. And overall, it was this attitude of pragmatism. Um, instead of blaming uh, the British for the harshness of colonial rule, it was not particularly onerous, but nonetheless, colonial rule is never pleasant. Uh, the Singaporeans did not blame the British, but instead embraced the British tradition as a way of creating the image that they wanted. Similarly, 
their pragmatism could be exhibited in the attitudes towards the Japanese after the war. As you know, the Japanese came in and occupied Singapore, and the occupation was cruel and demeaning, and uh, there was nothing good about it. Uh, but instead of nurturing a sense of grievance, the Singaporeans embraced the Japanese for what they could offer in the way of technology and capital. So while Malaysia and Indonesia zigged, Singapore zagged. That's basically what you're saying. They, the Singaporeans did not chase that rhetorical we are leaders of the third world thing down no, the rabbit hole. No, they did not. No. Uh, highly pragmatic, always concerned about the livelihood of the citizenry and the vulnerability of this small island with a relatively large population to support. And recognizing that the maritime, important though it was, was not significant, was not adequate, uh, to uh, provide what was needed. So they had to move into manufacturing, and they had no capital. They had to get capital from abroad. They had to persuade foreigners that Singapore was a good investment. And uh, this uh, meant uh, creating a, an attractive environment. I think this was very important, the greening of Singapore, uh, the planting of trees and flowers and the cleanliness of the streets and so forth, uh, conveying an atmosphere of stability and control, uh, the sort of thing that businessmen look for when they're investing their money. So all this uh, I think was very important. And, and if you add to that uh, this combination of the Chinese entrepreneurial urge and skill with the tradition of British law, order, stability, openness to the outside world, and free trade, too. Free trade was established when, when the British first arrived in Singapore and was a big reason why it became an instant success because other ports did not practice free trade. In a world that's becoming increasingly inward-looking yeah. now, uh, you know, with populism rising in, in much of the developed world, uh, what, what happens to Singapore now? You know, do they have to maintain their globalization to survive and maintain the, the friendly relations and trade with countries across the world and ensure that free trade... Uh, continues and that they benefit from you know both the best of the United States and China and other major economies. Sure, sure, but globalization is not going to disappear. Maybe under fire right now, but it, but uh, there's every reason for globalism to continue in the world. I think, and Singapore is placed in an ideal position culturally. I think. Uh, to, and economically, to take advantage of whatever opportunities there are. You know, the, you have a corruption-free business environment. You have this constant attention to logistics, to doing things better. Singapore is constantly rebuilding itself with a world-class infrastructure and uh, connectivity with the rest of the world by air and by sea. Um, 
They have a skilled and hardworking labor force, industrial peace, and most important, I think, is that uh, they have a strong interest in IT literacy, and they're aiming to become a smart nation. In other words, they have a culture of accepting change and embracing the new and adaptability, looking outside, questioning the established wisdom. And I think this is going to enable Singapore to ride uh, any uh, adverse currents um, uh, successfully. Now, the Singaporeans would be the first to tell you their situation is not perfect. That's one recipe of their success, this constant striving. John, I feel we do need to talk a little bit about politics. The place sometimes gets a bad rap in terms of political freedom. But the picture appears much more nuanced. For example, biotech research is a big thing in Singapore, and no one's looking over the shoulder of scientists saying, you can't do this with stem cells, you can't do that. Unlike political constraints on research in the United States. Talk a little bit about how politics has evolved as Singapore recognizes it has to keep evolving. Singapore is a republic. It's not a democracy, I guess you'd say, because it's a one-party state. One party has dominated the politics since since politics began there, even before independence. The government, however, has elections at regular intervals, and they subject themselves to uh, the will of the people, and the people have supported the government uh, consistently um, because they're satisfied with their living standards. But, of course, some chafe under the restrictive atmosphere of government, and this phrase nanny state, for example, has been applied to um, a government which is overly solicitous of its people. And so, There is a question of this, particularly when it affects the arts, and I talk about that a bit in my book. Uh, To what extent does control uh, stifle freedom of expression? What would happen to uh, Singapore if the the ruling party were to to lose power? Well, um, there are very capable people who could uh, take uh, office, and this is a possibility. The Internet has brought big changes to political expression because people can use that in a way that they could not use the older media uh, to express their opinions. And there are many people who sound off against the government. And um, as the opposition perhaps begins to coalesce a bit more, there's a possibility that the ruling party uh, will be voted out of office. But thus far, it's very strong. And uh, the opposition has not uh, coalesced and presented an alternative that most people think is viable. Let's close with a cosmic question, John. What does Singapore's history and Singapore now say about the expansion of Chinese economic and financial power? The question, you know, what would the world be like if there were 10 Singapores along the coast of China, if each of the 
old treaty ports uh, scattered along the China coast, uh, the so-called SEZs, uh, Special Economic Zones, which uh, Deng Xiaoping established, if each of them had sufficient independence to become a Singapore-type state, uh, this would mean <laughs> a, a, a major shift to uh, Asia, which is, of course, already occurring as Asia revives, renews after uh, some uh, four or five centuries of, uh, of lesser power. Um, so uh, the prospect of a number of Singapores is interesting. Um, and the fact that Singapore is essentially a Chinese state, the largest Chinese city outside China, outside China is um, an indication of uh, the power of that culture, the commercial genius of the Chinese people. So, John, in closing, what does Singapore tell us now? Not about Singapore itself, but about world trade and the rising power of China. Well, I would say Singapore is not a model, which uh, that is used quite often. You appear, it appears in the press, and the president of Rwanda says he wants uh, Rwanda to be the Singapore of, uh, of Central Africa. Um, Singapore is not a model for anybody, but it does offer lessons. Uh, and I think the first lesson is adaptability and pragmatism. The fact that Singapore has always climbed the economic ladder, beginning with shipping and now in brain services. And Singapore has achieved remarkable success in healthcare, in education, uh, in IT. Um, I think Singapore offers a lesson in uh, forgiving the sins of the past, as I mentioned earlier. Um, and Singapore also illustrates the value of using history to advantage. And uh, I mentioned uh, greening, too, the uh, lesson in creating an attractive environment that will uh, draw businessmen and others and you mentioned uh, government pay, too. Uh, Singapore is remarkably corruption-free. And one reason is that, as you mentioned, uh, cabinet ministers get very high salaries, million-dollar salaries. They're competitive with the private sector. And government service offers a, a prestigious as well as lucrative career. And that's very much, of course, part of the Chinese imperial tradition. I can't imagine anyone in Singapore making a speech saying government is the problem, not the solution. Yes, right. <laughs> John, this has been a real treat to have you with us. And again, congratulations on the book. It's an incredible historical and economic narrative that really sort of takes us right the way back to, you know, the China trade before there was a China trade. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed talking, and uh, I do hope people will uh, read the book. 
and I love talking about it. So thanks. Well, I'll let you know what they say next week when I'm there. Okay, great. <laughs> Benchmark will be back next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, and our Bloomberg app, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and Stitcher. While you're there, please take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us and let us know what you thought of the show. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Scott Landman. Dan, you're at Moss underscore Eco. Benchmark is produced by Sarah Patterson. Our head of podcasts is Alec McCabe. Full disclosure, Alec claims to have brought chewing gum into Singapore, chewed it, and nobody cared. See you next week.